following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me, if you would, to the book of Galatians. We're in chapter 1. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 10 today. We get to start a brand new series today going verse by verse through this incredible book of the Bible. Uh, just as you're turning there, kind of tee this up and give you some background. We aren't totally sure, but Galatians is thought by many to be the first of Paul's epistles. We know it's early, very early. You know, There's some debate on whether it was the first written, but... Uh, In case you don't know what an epistle is, those are pastoral letters that Paul wrote to churches that he had planted. They're full of encouragement, instruction, and correction in both doctrine and its practical application. And so this book was written right around AD 50, okay? Uh, That would have been roughly 15 years after Paul's encounter with Christ and his subsequent conversion on the road to Damascus. So Paul's about 15 years deep in the faith here. There's an interesting feature uh, of this letter in that it's, <clears throat> it's that this letter was not written to a single church, like, like the Corinthian church. You know, the letter of Corinthians was written to the church at Corinth, or uh, the letters to the Thessalonians were written to the church at Thessalonica. Galatian, uh, or Galatia, rather, was a region... It was broken up into northern and southern parts, uh, and it was named Galatia by the Romans uh, after they conquered the inhabitants uh, there, and they were known as the Gauls, which were a fairly fierce people that came out of modern-day France and then settled into modern-day Turkey. And so if you want to look at a map try to get an idea of where the region of Galatia was, today that's it. There is some debate on whether this letter was intended to reach the southern cities or the northern cities of Galatia, but we know from the book of Acts that Paul had traveled and preached and planted churches uh, in both. And so in any case, that's that's kind of a a Bible nerd debate that doesn't have a a ton of real implications, but I just thought I'd let you know about it in case you go read. Uh, The instructions here, um, they're, they're not by any means narrow in their application in terms of time or place. So whether Paul was writing to the northern cities here or the southern cities, the issues he's dealing with, they unfortunately even persist to this day, albeit oftentimes in different forms. So we're going to find application here in 2021 uh, as much as the Galatians did when they received this letter. Now, you you might also notice as we work through this book, uh, and and if you don't notice yourself, I'm going to point it out to you, that this letter has a different tone than some of the other epistles. Commentators have noted that this is the only one where Paul skips kind of a long expression of thanksgiving to God and and for the people he's writing uh, to in his introduction. And and as we will see, uh, this is at least in part due to the severity of the situation and the danger these people were in because of the deceptions and false doctrines uh, that they were being pulled into. Uh, I think Brother Dan, when he shared uh, our our post that we were going to be doing this series, the way he worded it, I can't word it any better. He said, Galatians is a gospel punch in the mouth. (laughs) I think that's, that's a good way to put it, brother. And thanks for using your social media to help us share the word. Um, And so I'm telling you that to prepare you, okay, (laughs) in case over the next few months you think I'm just getting cranky in my old age, all right? Uh, I want you to know it's it's not just that, (laughs) though that might be part of it, Uh, but I want you to know I I have no intention of trying to coat with sugar what is meant to taste spicy here, okay? Amen. We need to know that we are in no less danger of being confused or deceived than our ancient ancestors in the faith. And oftentimes, truth spoken plainly in the power of the Spirit is the best antidote to the poison of deception and false doctrine. Amen. So, (laughs) buckle up, all right? 
Um, even though this letter, it, it unapologetically meets false doctrine and error head on. Okay? We're not going to be challenged towards more restrictions as a way of relating to God, but actually more of true freedom in Christ. Uh, in John 8, Jesus said something really, it, it catches my attention. He said, those who the Son sets free are free indeed. He didn't really offer a ton of extra commentary on what he meant by that, though. This is one of those, I can imagine this being the subject of one of those fireside conversations with his disciples. Like, hey, hey, teacher, what, what did you mean by that? Like, what does free indeed mean? And, you know, compared to regular free, like, what is free indeed? What are you saying? What, what does that mean? And uh, I, I think in, in God's providence, the book of Galatians, through the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, God inspired Paul to kind of expound on that idea. What does it mean? And so that's some of how I view this book and why I'm really excited to dig into it with you. So I think we're all teed up, so let's get to work. Amen? We're going to read Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10 together. Paul... An apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, so that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Praise God for his word. Amen. Okay. Well, let's go back to verse one and let's work our way through this. The first thing we see is, is Paul right off the bat. He says, Paul, an apostle. Okay, what does that mean? There's a couple... A couple different ways this word can be understood. It can be understood simply as someone who, who has a message to bring. But that's not, that's not the usage here. Paul here is appealing to this reality. The fact that when he was on the road to Damascus, the Lord Jesus himself appeared to him, knocked him down and blinded him, and called him to preach his gospel to the Gentiles. Okay? Paul was selected, hand-selected by Jesus for a particular mission, and to be a part of what he was doing in the earth. The apostles stood separate from the rest of the followers of Jesus and disciples. They were the leaders that he chose to kind of head the charge of the, the birthing of the church after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And so apostle here, it's an, it's an office of authority. It's something that you only get when Jesus tells you himself you are one, okay? Which is why um, I get a little skittish about people running around calling themselves apostle today, but I digress, okay? Um, they, they may mean kind of one of the other kinds, but that can be confusing for people, not, not knowing there's, there's a specific office, there's a specific authority that comes when Jesus himself handpicked you, okay? And obviously, that's not happening anymore, okay? So, hallelujah. Uh, you might read that. You might say, Paul, an apostle, and then, and then he says, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. You might read that and go, whoa, is Paul insecure about this? What's, what's going on? The answer is that he's not insecure. Uh, I mean, he's pretty bold, actually, in what he's saying here. But why start like this? It's because he is combating the teachings of a group of people commonly known as Judaizers. Okay, you're like, wow, what's that? These guys are trying to undermine both Paul's authority and his teaching. It's a group of people that came to the Galatian churches and started to teach them. And there's a lot of 
there's a lot more detail that could be gone into. I'm going to try to give you the kind of the grand scope of the thing. Their basic message was this. Not that Christianity had to do with being saved by grace through faith and Christ alone, but that it was grace through faith and Christ alone, along with adherence to all of the Old Testament, Old Covenant, Jewish lifestyle, law, and all of that, right? So they, they were telling people, you need to be circumcised. That's, that's what God's people do. So if you want to be a follower of Jesus, you're going to need to be circumcised. You're going to need to observe all the dietary restrictions that were in the law. So they, they were adding to the gospel this idea that in order to be a part of God's people, God's new covenant people, the old covenant had to be fully adhered to. And this is, of course, incredibly problematic. Uh, and it's what Paul primarily writes this letter to combat, okay? And so that also accounts for some of the tone here. Paul had planted this church on a missionary journey. He, he had left, but now word has reached back to him that these false teachers have come behind and are trying to pull people into legalism and adherence to uh, Old Testament restrictions. And so Pastor Paul's a little bit fired up as he uh, <laughs> goes to write this letter. And, and I think that's even clear here in the first 10 verses we've read. <clears throat> uh, but what does Paul do? Well, he starts by saying, here's, here's who I am. And here's why I have a right to speak to you like I'm about to speak to you. And, and we're going to see more on that later because Paul actually, as we continue through chapter 1 and, <clears throat> and we break into chapter 2, he's going to use his, his personal testimony as the beginning of his gospel defense uh, all through the, the next couple chapters. So we'll, I don't want to get too much into that now because it's going <clears> to <throat> unpack even more as we move forward. But we do find here some helpful application already um, <clears throat> as it pertains to how we approach this book and the rest of the scriptures. To understand that Paul starts off here appealing to apostolic authority and, and the fact that there, there is authority <laughs> uh, by which people speak for God, that's, that's an important idea and it's something that some of us may struggle with. There, there are many who seek to undermine the authority of the scriptures and they do that oftentimes by making much of the fact that God used human authors to write the scriptures. And so uh, what, what is being inferred there or sometimes even explicitly claimed is that, there, be, be, that because men are fallible, then so is the Bible, right? I don't know if you've ever heard that. If you've been running, running around these things for very long, you've probably heard somebody say, well, how can you trust the Bible? It was written by men. That's kind of the shorthand way you'll hear that said. <clears throat> and here's, I think, we're starting a brand new book of the Bible. Let's make sure we're thinking about this correctly. Let's ask ourselves, could, could God have written the entire Bible as he did the tablets on, of the law on Mount Sinai? Right? Sure he could have. And, and if that would have been the best way to accomplish his purposes in giving us his word, he surely would have. Right? God could have just come down with his finger and wrote the entirety of the scriptures on the side of a mountain. Said, here, right, you know, copy this down, pass it out, right? Could he have done that? Sure he could have, absolutely. He could have, but this would have been, it had been an interesting departure from God's pattern throughout all of history. Because I would, I would remind us that God also could have built an ark himself, but he called Noah to do it. God could have easily freed his people from the clutches of Egypt, but he called Moses as an instrument of liberation to do so. God could have easily, with little effort, not breaking a sweat, he could have smote the Philistine giant Goliath. But instead he called a little shepherd boy to do it with a sling and some stones. In God's providential wisdom, he has included his people in his grand plan of redemption from the beginning. And so it's not surprising that the writing of his word was handled the same way. Now, do I have a clear-cut answer for you why God has seen it fitting in his divine wisdom and, and for the accomplishing of his purposes to include us in what he's doing as far as the plan of redemption? I don't have a good answer for that because I probably would have left me out. Amen. And if you're sitting there going, well, I don't know, I think I'm probably a good candidate to be in the mix. Well, think about it more. Okay. Amen. 
What's important here is that we don't see (laughs) the Bible as one book or source of truth among many. It stands alone in a category all by itself. And we see that even declared within the scriptures. Let me read you 2 Timothy 3.16. It says this, All scripture is inspired by God and beneficial for teaching. Inspired by God and beneficial for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be fully capable, equipped for every good work. It's interesting. When it says all scripture is inspired, some of your translations will say God breathed. And that's because the word there, the Greek word there is theonoustos. And it's very unique. You don't see that said about much at all ever. It's because it's, it's, what's trying to be captured there is this idea that the scriptures are God-breathed in a way that no other literary work is. This is something different than everything else out there. Second Peter one twenty one. Peter gives us another idea of how to understand this because there's, there's debate, right? When we, we talk about the idea, the doctrine of inspiration. There's at least four different ways to understand how that works, right? That did God put people in a trance and, and that's how the scriptures were transcribed? Or how did, how did he do it? Well, Peter says it this way. And you might be saying, well, what, what's Peter's qualifications? I don't know, like leader of the apostles, kicked it with Jesus for three years straight, you know, that kind of stuff, right? Like handpicked, you know, again. So I'd say he probably, you know, if I'm going to try to figure out how I should think about this, Peter's a good source. He says this, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That word moved has the idea of like how a wind in a sail moves a boat, right? So we see God's brilliance in the scriptures. To me, the clearest example is the fact that we have four gospels. Could we have just had Matthew or just had Mark or just had Luke um, or just had John? I hesitate on that because John is so distinct from the rest. However, Could we have just had one gospel? Sure, but God in his great brilliance gave us different accounts from different men that are going to have different perspectives, catching different details that gives us a a more circumspect, full view of the life and teachings and the death and resurrection of Jesus. Pretty important stuff for us to have details about. And if we're going to follow this guy, right? Amen. Okay, so there's, we see at least that much as we look at the idea of inspiration that, that what Peter's saying is that prophecies of old, the writing of the scriptures, these men were moved along by the Holy Spirit. Okay? The Holy Spirit was in the mix. God was in the mix of these scriptures being written. That has serious implications for how we approach this. Okay? Uh, last thing I'll give you is 2 Peter 3.16. You might be saying, okay, that's great, but you know, how do I know what Paul's... You know, you're already saying Paul's all fired up. He's cranky. Was he being moved along by the Holy Spirit when he said the harsh stuff we're going to see in Galatians? Well, 2 Peter 3.16, so Peter again, as also in all his letters, he's talking about Paul, speaking in them of these things in which there are some things are hard, that are hard to understand. Right? So first of all, don't feel bad. If we're working through Galatians or any of Paul's epistles and you get to a point where you're like, Huh, that's tough to understand. Peter thought so too. You're in good company, okay? Amen. Uh, But what does he say? He says that that also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things in which there are some things that are hard to understand, which the untaught and the unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. Peter here is clearly calling the writings of Paul scripture. Okay? You, you can decide whether or not that counts for you. It counts for me. All right? Amen. And this is part of why Paul makes a point here to remind the Galatians of his apostolic authority. Paul called and commissioned by the Lord Jesus himself. Because of that, the church should honor, respect, and submit to his words with reverence. As if the Lord Jesus was speaking to them. Because when we are reading the scriptures, he is. And I'm not sure, I want to make sure, that's how we're thinking about it. As we approach the scriptures, because, how, how am I saying that? I say, whoa, that, that was kind of a leap, man. It's, it's not really. Because when Jesus was alive, he told his disciples, you're going to wait and power is going to come from on high to, to give you everything you need to go and to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. 
What was that power he was talking about? He was talking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the third person in the Trinitarian Godhead who has a couple responsibilities as it pertains to us. He corrects us, he teaches us, he guides us, okay? He encourages us, convicts us of sin. I don't know if I said that already once, but I'm going to say it again because that's good for us to know. But the Holy Spirit indwelling, right, the people of God, in particular, those that wrote Scripture, if the Holy Spirit is saying it, it's God saying it. It's Jesus saying it. And we have this kind of mysterious summary of this in the beginning of the book of John, that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 14, the Word became flesh. The very essence of Christ himself is contained within these scriptures. It's something precious God did for us. And I hope that as you continue to walk with the Lord, you will increasingly see his word as the precious gift that it is and treat it as such. Amen. Let's move then into verses two through four. Verse two is a common greeting in all Paul's letters. What does it say? And all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia, sorry, verse three, this is what I'm really after. Grace to you and peace, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What I want you to see is that this is, it's more than just pleasantries for him to say grace and peace to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It isn't just something kind of frilly to say to start a letter It is a summary statement of what we believe. Martin Luther had a lot to say about this in his commentary on Galatians. But if we understand really the the flow of the words, grace and peace, we need to see that that it's, it's grace from God that leads to peace with God. He says grace and peace. I want you to have grace and peace. You can't have peace without grace. You can't have it. You're not going to have peace where it matters most, real peace, and that's with God. Because we need grace in order to have that. We need grace to remove the enmity between us and God, caused by our sin. And so, if I can just encourage you in this, it would not be a waste of time for you to think often on what seems like a simple statement and what it means. And if you'll go through the rest of the epistles, you'll see a common thread. Grace and peace to you, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's big, doctrinal, beautiful implications to that simple, maybe what seems like just a greeting. You could glaze over it, but we shouldn't. Verse 4, then he starts to get into some more meat here. Uh, What's it say? So he says, grace to you and peace from our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who, right? So verse 4 is tying us to the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Interesting here, this rescue from the present evil age, it's real important that we understand what that means and what it doesn't mean. It's not meant to give the idea of rescuing us from the presence of something. It's more giving us the idea of rescuing us from the power of something. And that aligns with our master's words in John 17, because we could, we could misunderstand this and have unrealistic expectations that, that would be harmful for our participation in God's plan of redemption. So let me read you this from John 17. This is the high priestly prayer of Jesus. He says, I am not asking you, this is Jesus praying to the Father, I am not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them away from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I also sent them into the world. And so you'll see this sometimes, a shorthand version of this principle You'll see it stated as those of us that are followers of Christ, we are meant to be in the world, but not of the world. I mean, I, I, I'm sure there's some people, you, you, you can hear that shorthand so often, you might be looking for the verse, right? It, it's not said that, that short and plain and sweet and to the point, but the principle is very clear. And that's what we see here, this, what Paul's talking about, this, this rescuing of, of the evil of the present age. It's not the idea that 
God's going to lift us up out of what's going on around us. It's not even that he's going to shield us from any and all of the effects of that. It's that he's going to empower us to be able to walk in a manner worthy of the name of Christ through all of the effects of this present evil age. And to have an effect, right? That's why he called us to be light and salt, right? Light dispels darkness. Salt holds back the rot. Where, where does the darkness come from? What's, the, what's rotting? Why? It's because of sin, right? The Bible says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Sin, sin isn't just this dormant thing allowed to continue and to manifest and to multiply throughout the human race. It's, it, it gets nastier and uglier and more destructive as it goes. And we, as the people of God, filled with the Spirit of God, endowed with the Word of God, are meant to go into this world and to push back on all of that. Why? So that we can feel like big champions and like we're really awesome? Oh, it's all to the glory of God, and Paul's going to make that clear here in just a second. It's worth noting, I think, that we're we're not even four verses into this letter before Paul calls to our attention the way, not just that Jesus is going to rescue us, but the way Jesus rescues us from the power of this evil age. What's he say? That he might rescue us from, the, from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. So he does it according to the will of the God and Father, but what's the mechanism? He gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us. He gave himself for our sins. And this along with verse 5, it should, it should have pointed the Galatians. And, and it should point us to the legitimacy and the trustworthiness of Paul's teaching. What do I mean by that? Well, because we're four verses into the letter and he's already talking about he who gave himself for our sins, and that that's the power by which we're going to be rescued from the, the power of this evil age. And what's verse 5 say? To whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. Very quickly, our rescuing, the glory for that is being pointed to the Father and to the Son. And we should always ask ourselves, when someone is preaching or teaching, who is being glorified? Because in our sinful state, people oftentimes, I would, I would go so far as to say most often, if we could assess ourselves honestly, we, we prefer to have a human mediator between us and God. Maybe you haven't thought about that before. It's, it's important that we do. And because that's true most of the time, it makes it very easy to lack discernment if, some, if someone mentions God or the name of Jesus even if what they're really doing is they're glorifying themselves or their works. You know that sprinkling the, the name of Jesus or a random mention of God doesn't mean that somebody's message is Christ-centered, that it's meant to reflect glory to God alone because he's the only one worthy of it. You do know that, right? It's important that we do. See, we like having heroes that we can feel and see and touch. And that often means that we will excuse self-glorification because we like imagining that person as a buffer between us and the white-hot fire of God's glory. There's oftentimes something in us that, that recognizes <laughs> we have no business in the presence of God on our own, right? But what you don't need because of what Christ has done and what he came and he claimed and what he accomplished, what you don't need is another human between you and God. What you need is Jesus Christ, the advocate, the mediator, the high priest forever. He functions in that role. Amen. I hope you're happy about that. It's real important. And to him be the glory forevermore. Amen. That brings us down to verse 6 and 7. He says, I am amazed... <laughs> I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. I am amazed. I just have to say, 
I want you guys to know I really struggle to relate to Paul's pastoral frustration here. Because I never feel like I've told somebody something 10 different ways, 10 different times, had them repeat it back to me and say, we got it, you're good, right? You understand this. Yes, I got it, yep. And then a month later, see them doing the exact opposite. I never feel that way, never have that experience. So I just have to reach with my imagination here to understand what Paul's going through. If you didn't pick up on it, that was a thick layer of sarcasm. I'm talking about like, A layer as thick as the mayonnaise you'd put on a meatloaf sandwich. You know what I'm talking about? Thick layer of sarcasm. I get what Paul's feeling right here. Man. Hallelujah. Or not that not that I've had an individual conversation ten times, but but even sometimes that I've I've preached it from this very pulpit at least ten times. And in ten different ways, thought hard about how to creatively illustrate it so that it makes sure everyone gets it. And then it's like, what? are you doing? <laughs> uh, sometimes, man, I just want you to know, some, sometimes as a shepherd, you just, want, you just want to shoulder shake somebody. Like, stop! And it's, it's, not, it's not out of some crazy sense of, of wanting to control people. Man, it's, if, you, if somebody, Pastor Paul, man, obviously had a shepherd's heart. He gave his life to roll around the ancient world, you know, pushing through shipwrecks and snake bites and crazy stuff to get the word about Jesus to as many people as possible, to plant churches and establish leaders so that the the good word of the gospel could continue to grow, right? The guys, he wants God to be glorified. But but there there can, even all that being the case and and a love for the people, it can still be frustrating because, I mean, when, when you love somebody and you watch them, you know, just running their head into something over and over again, you're like, hey, you don't have to do that. There's another way. But they're like, no, I just want to ram my head more. It's like, okay, um, praise the Lord. I, <laughs> you know, let me say this. I mean, you guys, you guys are easier to pastor than, than I know many guys have it. So thanks for that. But also, quit running your head into stuff, especially if we've talked about it 10 times, all right? Uh, but, but I want us to look at the dire warning of this language, okay? Because there is no ambiguity here about the exclusivity of God's gospel. I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. I don't know how, man, this, these first 10 verses of Galatians, it really, it ups the intensity. It should on the way we think about how big of a problem false doctrine is or slightly counterfeited supposed gospels. Man, it's a big deal. Why? Because to accept counterfeit, false or perverted versions of the gospel, Paul says here, it's nothing less than abandoning him who called you by the grace of God. To abandon the message of God, the gospel of Christ, is to turn your face from him and walk from him. It is no small thing. We have to get comfortable with the exclusivity of the good news we have in Jesus. There is one way. And how how willing we are to take that for, for what it is. Jesus didn't say, I'm one possibility among many possibilities. I'm one path among many paths to get to God. Believe whatever you believe with fervency and and we'll count that. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man is going to come to the Father except through me. And again, part of what we're seeing here, part of what we're having laid out for us is again a treatise on, it's a dissertation on the problem of sin, how big of a deal it is. There was only one way. Sin is a cosmic problem. The need for humanity to be forgiven of treason against the holy God. This was not a small thing. And there was only one way that problem was going to be solved. And it was God himself allowing himself to be slain on a cross. Blood be shed for the forgiveness of our sins. There was only one way. No amount 
of good works, no amount of, of genuine intentions could build a bridge back between a broken, sinful people and a perfect, holy God. Christ himself had to lay across that chasm so that we may walk by faith across the bridge he alone can build. However, we don't typically like, as humans, being told there is only one way. (laughs) We like options. We like feeling like we have some control. But this is one way, and we're going to see this continually through this book, that the severity and the problem of sin is highlighted. And also, our ability to either accept or not accept this exclusivity of the gospel. It's, it's one of the greatest tests of our submission to God. And I would just encourage you to keep that in mind. And it's, we live in a time where I expect if you are going to move into the world with any amount of love-motivated, holy boldness and speak the truth about man's condition and God's solution in Christ. You're going to be met with resistance because there's this idea that has grown exponentially that it is unloving to claim there is only one way. That it is unloving to claim that God, the creator of all, has the right to declare that there's one way. But friends, (laughs) this isn't theological and... and It may sound trite, but at one level, it just is what it is. (laughs) There's no workaround. And I think, I I understand, I can empathize with how difficult that is to hear for somebody that has been taught the very opposite. I, I get that. I even get the basic human instinct to want to resist the exclusivity of the message of the gospel. I I totally can understand that. But I I will also say, I hope this is true for you. The longer I walk with Jesus, the more I understand what this one way looks like. The more I see the different facets of how and why this was the way that God redeemed us, is rescuing us from the evil power of this present age. The more I understand it, the more it does make sense. But there's, there's a level at which it doesn't make sense to our natural minds, which is why faith is required to please God. Faith is required to walk with God. There's an element in which this always has been and always will be about faith. Has God given us enough to trust him? Has he shown us enough? Has he done enough? I believe he has. I hope you do too. I hope you will if you haven't to this point. Sin is a severe problem. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's just one way. It's a big problem. took a big solution. took God himself being born of a virgin, living a perfect sinless life, and then allowing himself to be the final sacrifice that would give us a person to place our faith in. It's about whether or not we can trust Jesus, not whether or not we think we can do good enough or refrain from doing bad enough. And if we didn't get the weight of this yet, if you're not convinced yet, Paul doubles and triples down to make the point. Let's read that in verses eight and nine. I'm not sure. Well, okay, let's let's try this. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a what do you say first? Even if we, if I here's he's lifting the gospel message, the gospel of Christ, he's lifting it above himself. If I come back to you somehow deluded, if I come back to you somehow deceived and try to convince you of anything other than the pure gospel we shared with you, I am to be accursed. Or if an angel does it, I don't care. The word there is anathema. Set it apart for destruction. Not kind language, okay? 
If we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. Oh, you guys didn't hear me? As we've said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. We feeling the gravity yet? That's, that's big. Now, some of you might, and I get this, and I'm not, I'm not trying to poke fun at anyone. I could totally understand how this could be your reaction right at this moment. Like, whoa, that doesn't sound very loving. I thought like love was, you know, like the key to this whole thing. <laughs> they should be accursed twice. Okay. Um, what's the deal with that? Well, okay. Yeah, we need help. We need a more circumspect view, right? And fuller definition of, of what is loving. There's more for us to consider here. Okay. Paul uses language uh, throughout his epistles, this idea that for him to, go into a place and to labor for years oftentimes to teach people the gospel and to raise up and vet leaders and to establish a church that can then continue on in that work of making disciples and teaching people the good news about Jesus and how to obey him and how to follow him properly. When he does that, there's, there's, this, there's this sense of gospel fatherhood. He feels a love for those people similar to what a father would feel for their children. Because in a spiritual sense, he's done a lot of the work of raising and rearing them and then setting them into the the mission they have in their their life with Jesus. So that's some of the affection he has here for these Galatians is like what a, a, a gospel father would have for his children. And that starts to, then it starts to make sense when you, when you, run the tone we're seeing through that grid. Not only the way he talks very plainly to the Galatians, I mean, we're going to get to a point in chapter three where he says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, right? Dad gets to talk to you like that. Not just anybody gets to roll up in and and say, hold on, man, you're being a fool, right? But a gospel father does. And it's not just that we see how he talks to the Galatians, it's how He talks about those who are trying to lead them astray from this pure and perfect gospel, this message of Jesus Christ. Even if it's me, an angel, anybody, they should be accursed because this is that important, because this is that big of a deal. There is no room for error here. This is the primary point. This is the main thing. This is the thing God has been unfolding ever since he said in Genesis 3 that the seed of that woman was going to come and stomp on the head of that serpent. It was this plan unfolding through Abraham and and through the patriarchs and the people in the wilderness and the giving of the law, the kings, the prophets, and all all of that. it It was the slow unfolding of this grand and glorious plan to redeem people from their sins, culminating in the birth of Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the one who came to deal with the sin of the world and to defeat the serpent. Try to think of an analogy to help some of us that might be struggling with this idea um, and how you, I realize some of you could be like, man, I just don't, I don't know that you should say anybody should be a curse. That's harsh, man. That doesn't, I can't understand a way that that's loving. Well, help, let's, will you just play imagination with me for a minute? Let's think about this. Think about, think about somebody you love very much, all right? Think, think the person you love the most in the whole world, okay? Um, hopefully that's not you. If it is, then come see me, all right? We'll, we'll talk about that. Okay. We got some work to do. Um, so think, think about the person, or, or you know, if you have children, think about you know, all of them, your little crew, but but think about some folks or a person that you love very, very much and, and they're trapped in a house fire. Okay. And they're stuck, but, and, and, you know, the smoke's got to them and they, they can't get themselves out, but you're, you're able to bust in there and find a clear route through the flames and the smoke. And you're able to grab their hand and lead them back out that clear path. But just as you're about to bend the corner for the last little stretch to get out of the house and to get to safety, here comes somebody standing there with a white t-shirt and a Sharpie marker that they wrote firefighter on there. 
And they're standing in the way and they're saying, no, 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 no. It's not safe to go this way. You need to go back that way. But you know for certain because you just went through there. That way is death. That way there is no way out. The only way out of this thing is through the doorway. Self-appointed firefighter is saying, I can't go through. What's the loving response? What's the loving thing to do in that situation? I'm going to tell you what it is. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. If you're that firefighter, I will headbutt you between your eyes. And if you're knocked out and you're not too heavy, I will try to drag you with us. If I just stun you and you want to come with us, you are absolutely welcome. Please do, because we actually know which way is out here. That's what's loving in that situation. Paul is headbutting these Judaizers between the eyes. And he wants everyone to know it. And that is loving. It's, lo- it's not just loving for the people we're trying to rescue out of the flames, man. It's loving for, for Dudley, the self-appointed firefighter, too. Because he's wrong. He's mistaken. He's deceived about which way is the way to safety. Amen? Well, Pastor Vince, what I heard in all of that is that I can headbutt people and it's loving. What you've done is miss the point of the illustration, okay? Please don't go out of here headbutting people in the name of Jesus. Unless you're in a house fire and a self-appointed firefighter is trying to stop you, then you absolutely, if you're in that situation, you can say, Pastor Vince told me I get to headbutt somebody. And I will stand, I will go to court with you and say, yep, it was me. (laughs) Amen. And even, even with all that, I realize, I realize this is difficult, man. I'm, I'm, I'm working here to try to make it make sense. I'm working here to try to help us understand why this is appropriate and loving, but you might still be wondering why the language is so strong here. Uh, maybe you struggle to see why false teaching is such a, a big deal, right? I would, I would submit to you that, that the house fire is tiddlywinks compared to the danger of an eternity separated from God. I hope you see it that way. If not, ask that the Lord would help you to, because it's true. But friends, here's what it comes back to. It comes back to the reality of what's at stake here and the fact that, the, that only the true gospel, the real good news about Jesus, leads us out of darkness and into light, out of death and into life. That's why this is such a big deal. It's not just that these Judaizers are popping up to the churches of Galatia and saying, hey, yeah, we, we've got... We got a slightly different idea than Paul. He says, this is another gospel. This is a different gospel. It's false. And it's going to lead you to destruction. There, there is it's a zero tolerance, man. And there's an element in which we need to follow Paul's lead here in the way we deal with any kind of doctrinal infidelity that would take us away from the pure and perfect truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Why are you talking like that, man? Because, friends, the gospel is our treasure. It is to be fiercely defended from dilution, but it is also to be distributed freely to all. The gospel is our anchor. Though we may be buffeted by the winds of men's philosophy and false doctrine, it is the gospel that anchors us, that secures us to the bedrock of Christ Jesus. It's the only thing. The gospel is our cause. It is the compass which keeps us from the confusion of variant paths, which waste our passions on foolish and lesser endeavors. It's the gospel that does these things. It's our treasure. It's our anchor. It's our cause, which is why I'm encouraging you. If you're visiting here today, maybe you're here from out of town this is not your home church. Maybe, maybe you're, you're participating through the live stream. Friends, Love City Church is not the only place where you'll find a, a unwavering focus on the centrality of the gospel. There's many faithful churches doing the same thing, but that is a requirement if we're going to be following Jesus faithfully. His gospel must be central. Amen. Well, sometimes I get tired of hearing the gospel all the different ways every week. Well, friend, Martin Luther said, you need the gospel beat into your head daily. 
Well, I don't know if I like what Martin Luther said. Well, he's right. Think about it longer. (laughs) Friends, without the true gospel, we are lost. And if we are lost, we have nothing to offer a lost world. Nothing other than another distraction, another deception, perhaps with some counterfeit gospel language sprinkled into it. It won't do. Paul said, those running that scheme should be accursed. I know some of you, even after all of that explanation, still don't like that. I'm praying, I'm praying that all of us, that what we would get out of that, I'm not, I'm not even saying you... <laughs> You are not Paul the Apostle, let's just say that, nor am I. We should be very slow and very careful about running around talking about anybody being accursed, okay? Because we uh, are not perfect, let's just say that. Paul wasn't either, but inspired and specially equipped by the Holy Spirit for this authoritative position as an apostle and a church planner. Um, And so... all, all I'm, at the end of the day, here's, here's what I want us to see. Here's what, what I'm, I'm hoping the needle will move towards, on, and primarily out of these first 10 verses. The gospel is a central issue, and deviation from it is not a small thing. This matters deeply. False doctrine matters deeply. Little tweaks to the pure truth of the gospel, it's not okay. It's a major deal, and it's not something we should tolerate. It's not something we should listen to. It's something we should stand against. Because there is only one way by which people will be saved. All of these other ways only lead them further into darkness by a different path. Amen. That brings us to verse 10. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. If we are going, if we're going to seek to truly please God, we will find ourselves at odds with some men. This is a truth that we just need to buckle up and be ready for. There are those who are opposed to God. There are those who are opposed to Christ. Now, we deal with those people differently than other people deal with their enemies, right? Like I said, If I headbutt Dudley, the self-appointed firefighter, I'm still inviting him to come out of the house with us. That's important. I I understand deception. I was deceived. I got compassion on this brother that he thinks the wrong way is the right way. I'm not going to let my kids die in the fire though, Dudley, because I got to headbutt you, brother. You feel me? But I still love you, and I still want the best for you. And I'm actually hoping that through that interaction... I'm, I'm, even if it seems really rough and like we're not getting along very well, I'm still hoping that the beautiful seeds of this gospel take root in your heart. I want you to find the way out. I don't care how nasty you are to me, how hateful you are to me. Amen. But we need to understand, friends, the good news is offensive on multiple levels. I'll just give you a few. The good news offends our pride because it tells us that we need a savior. No question. We need a savior. We cannot save ourselves. It, it gives us no credit, none at all for our salvation. It says that it's all work Jesus has done for us. The gospel offends our wisdom. It, it, it saves us by something that many consider foolish, that God would become a man and he would die a humiliating death at the hands of other men. What? What? How is that God's great plan of redemption? How is, how is that? How is some humble Galilean peasant being crucified 2,000 years ago? How is that? That sounds foolish. Well, it does. Unless the Holy Spirit comes and does what's necessary in your heart and in your mind to show you why it's far more beautiful than it is foolish. And it is the only way. The gospel offends our knowledge. It, it requires that we believe something. It it goes against what we think we know scientifically, that that a dead man could rise from the grave and that he was the first to receive a glorious new body and that will be his for eternity and that we are going to follow after him. The gospel is offensive in many ways. 
And if we seek to please men more than God, Paul says we are not bondservants of Christ. A harsher word, but one that gets the point here across maybe better, is actually slaves of Christ. Paul says if we're going to be men pleasers, we will not be slaves of Christ. And you might be thinking, hold on. I thought this letter was about freedom in Christ. And here we have this language around being a slave of Christ. What does that mean? Friend, I I get you. That is a bit of a conundrum, isn't it? But what it forces us to do here, and and this, this should be part of the great work we're doing for the next several months as we work through this book. Friends, we need to recalibrate our understanding of freedom. That's a lot of what we're going to be challenged to here. A different understanding of freedom. What do I mean? I mean this, that a fish is a slave to water. But the water is what it was made for. And it's the only place it can truly be free to do what it was created to do. Is that really slavery? (laughs) Or is that actually freedom? How free is a fish that gets in its precious little mind that I'm, I'm tired of being enslaved to water. Land is my gig. Right? How free is he then? Not at all. Why? He wasn't made for that. Freedom from a gospel perspective, freedom from a biblical perspective is not the total casting off of all restraints. It's receiving and accepting the right restraints. That's what biblical freedom looks like. A tree is a slave to the earth, but that soil is what holds it upright and provides the nutrients and life that it needs to exist at all. That tree ain't doing nothing without that earth. It is enslaved to that soil, but but it's a different kind of slavery. (laughs) It's a different kind of joining. That, That soil is the source of life. That tree has no shot without it. That's not really slavery in the way we think about it. That's not a restriction of freedom. That's letting the tree grow and do and reproduce and be exactly what it was created for. That's, that's the real definition of freedom. And it's only something we're going to find connected to God through Christ, which is what we were created for. Because as the soil is to the tree, as the water is to the fish, so God is to the human. He is the source of all life. He's the water we swim in, man. He's the earth we're rooted to. We are all slaves to someone. Either self, Satan, or our Savior. We're going to say that again throughout this sermon series. I know some of you aren't sure you like it. But everyone is a slave to someone. Either self, Satan, or our Savior. But only in full submission to the one who made us and loves us are we able to find true freedom to be who and what we were made to be. And my prayer is that we will all continue to grow into this freedom that only King Jesus and his gospel can provide and that all of that will be for his glory and for our good. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. God, I thank you. I thank you that you have preserved your word. I thank you that in your great power, you caused your scriptures to be written, that you moved men along by the power of your Holy Spirit to accomplish your goal, which was to make sure we knew who you were and who we are and how it is we can relate to you. I thank you, Lord Jesus, uh, that you not only wrote your word, but you preserved your word, that we haven't had difficult language like Paul calling for people to be accursed twice, removed because it would be offensive to some. I thank you, Lord, that your word is your word and that your word has power, that your word has authority. Let us see it as such, Lord. Help us to see it as the bread of life that it is. It's a source of strength for us. It is what nourishes us as your people. May we value it May we place it high as it belongs. I thank you, Lord, for the holy boldness, the pastoral love that Paul had for his people, his willingness to stand and to fight. 
when they were being drawn away from the light and the love of your gospel into darkness and deception and slavery once again, to legalism and the lie that we can save ourselves through our own efforts. It has always and only ever been about faith in you. Faith is what pleases you. Faith is what allows us to come close to you. Lord, I ask you to work these things in. Continue, Lord, shaping us as your people as we move through this book and unpack all that you have for us here. We love you. Thank you for all the work you've done in us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org. Dot org.